You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. So on this Father's Day, we would have it, God would have it, in a way, as we've been working through this book, that we might consider what new moms went through in Israel as they welcomed a new baby into their homes, as they entered into a time of purification, and as they would have their uncleanness cleansed and atoned for by making both a sin offering and a burnt offering. So today in Leviticus 12, we will dive into the process of childbirth, male circumcision, menstrual bleeding, and more. So men, happy Father's Day. <laughs> but on a much more serious note, we, we realize that this passage here is really difficult for us to understand. There's a lot of challenges. After all, there really is a chasm of cultural differences here between us in 2019 and the people of Israel, ancient Israel. And some of these chasms and some of these differences are differences that we just have a hard time understanding. And there are some things we just don't know the answer to as we try to understand. But yet, as we mention all the time at Redemption Church, we are people that are committed to the authority of God's word, to the sufficiency of God's word. And we believe that all of God's word is good and is inspired by the spirit and is profitable for the building up of his church. So with that conviction, this is why we preach through books of the Bible, even Books of the Bible like Leviticus, because we believe, yes, that even Leviticus 12 has been given to us by the Holy Spirit for our good in Christ. So as we study this passage, we have to realize that it is really easy to misunderstand this passage or to misapply this passage. So we have to approach Leviticus 12 with great care and ultimately with God's help. And so as we look at Leviticus 12, here's what we're going to learn this morning. Here's the sermon summary, is that childbirth shows us the sanctity of human life and the sanctification that we need due to sin. Childbirth shows us the sanctity of human life and the sanctification that we need due to sin. So as we look at this text, we're really going to break it down into those two sections. We're going to first look at the the sanctity of life, and then we'll look at the sanctification of life. So let's first look this morning at the uh, the sanctity of life in verse 1 through 5. Verse 1 through 5. So I'm a father, right? I'm the father of three wonderful children, one of whom is sick this morning. So Lucy woke up... uh, vomiting at the breakfast table. So needless to say, mommy is home with her this morning. But, but I, I'm father to three wonderful children, Jude, Ellie, and Lucy. And you know, and I remember each time that, that we went to the hospital for their births. I think that's just a memory that just gets ingrained in every parent's mind. And you know, for if you're a parent, if you're a dad, if you're a mom, you know that there are so many different emotions that brew in your heart on that occasion. There is excitement, there's fear, <laughs> there's hope, there's joy, there's thankfulness, there's more. And, and you know, as a dad, I, I sought to make myself as useful as I could be in such times, but 
But there's the reason that the mom labors, right? It's not dad labor, it's it's mother who, who labors. The whole birthing process, either naturally or through C-section, I mean, it requires toughness and grit and pain and sacrifice in a way that only a mother can do, right? Only a mother can handle that. But there is a moment, though, that when that new baby emerges into the light for the first time, all of those emotions that are swirling around evaporate away, leaving only love, that precious gift of God in the child. All human life is precious, isn't it? But I think the life of a new baby exemplifies the sanctity of life so beautifully. And you know, that's what makes this moral crisis of abortion so outrageous and vile and demonic in our culture, isn't it? I mean, even just a few days ago, if you keep up with the news, and you're probably better off if you don't, but if you do, you might have heard that the state of Illinois just a few days ago approved the violent and barbaric practice of of partial birth abortion. And it's interesting, as you look at the fabric of American society, the moral outrage against abortion seems to be building as heartbeat bills are continually passed in state state legislatures and signed into the law. It seems that it's only a matter of time before there will be a Supreme Court case that will challenge the Roe versus Wade decision. So tension is growing, and I think it's only a matter of time before that issue of abortion is before the Supreme Court again. And I think as Christians, we need to be committed to praying that Roe versus Wade would be overturned and that our nation would repent of this silent holocaust that has taken the lives of millions of children these last few decades. You see, so many in our culture fail to recognize, fail to see the beauty and dignity of human life. And as Christians, one of the things we have to affirm, this passage helps us affirm, is what the Bible says that every human being, from conception to final breath, is made in God's image and is therefore protected and ought to be protected by society. We have to hold to the firm conviction of the biblical teaching of the sanctity of human life. And as we look at Leviticus 12, this is one of the ways that you could misunderstand the text before us. As you look at this mom and the birthing of these children, you could think this would be wrong, but you could say, well, you know, these babies, they are what is defiling these new moms. The baby is the one who makes the mother unclean. But that would be an incorrect interpretation of this passage. As the rest of the scripture clearly states, that that children are a blessing. They are God's unique gift, special gift. The Bible makes it clear that anytime a new baby is welcomed into the world, it is cause for celebration, not for mourning. Remember the passage that James read for us from Psalm 127 this morning? That passage that Psalm celebrates, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are reward. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, right? Children are a sign of God's blessing, not of his cursing. And so the Bible always presents the arrival of a baby as a precious gift, never a curse. Every child is given dignity. 
not just the promised child of Isaac, but even the child conceived by the sinful action of the parents, like Ishmael. All children are honored and held precious because they possess the Imago Dei. They have the image of God. And so we see this principle of the sanctity of human life all throughout the Bible. And not only does the Bible celebrate the birth of every child, it also laments their destruction, particularly from the murderous actions of state-sponsored murder. From Pharaoh to Herod to America, Rachel is weeping for her children. You see, the biblical charge for every follower of Christ is that we must be a voice for the voiceless, a defense for the defenseless. That as Christians, one of the things we learn right here in Leviticus 12 is that we must be advocates for the sanctity of human life. And on this Father's Day, there is a special way, an easy way that all of us this morning can be about defending the cause of life. As many of you have heard, over these last few weeks, we've been collecting baby bottles filled with coins and cash or checks to support the Wilson Pregnancy Center. And those are kind of being collected this Sunday. And so if you would like to help or take a step in action, stop by that table that Greet's been setting up the last few weeks and talk to her about how you can make a donation or how you can get involved as a volunteer. Because as a church, we need to, to be about this cause. We need to commit ourselves to bringing light and hope to so many women who are struggling and in need. As redemption, may we be about this gospel work of life. So the issue in Leviticus 12, this is just get this out of the way, this in no way diminishes the value of children, and in no way are children the cause of the uncleanness of their mothers. So that's really clear. We got to get that, that out of the way. That would be a misinterpretation. So what's the question then? Why then do women who give birth to children become ritually unclean under Israel's covenantal law? Well, this uncleanness is not just a woman's issue, but it's a human issue. That's one of the things we have to remember. Leviticus 12 deals with purification after childbirth, but later on we will see too that men could be unclean due to bodily discharges. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. God is not signaling in Leviticus 12. He's not signaling them out or calling them out for the way their body works, but rather God gives these series of, of laws dealing with the bodily discharges for men and women alike. So in terms of, of, of the purification after childbirth, which is what we see here in Leviticus 12, we, we must say that, that it is only females who can give birth to a child right? And sadly, that's something we do have to state pretty explicitly nowadays, right? Only a female can give birth to a child. So Leviticus 12 isn't signaling or calling out women exclusively, but rather it's dealing with something only women have to deal with, right? The birth of a child. So again, now we have to be very careful here as well as we think through what does it mean to be unclean? So this is important, not just here in Leviticus 12, but as we look through these series of unclean laws, what's going on here? Well, uncleanness, uncleanness did not typically deal with personal individual sin. That's really important to mention, right? You weren't sinning necessarily if you became unclean, but rather 
uncleanness was the effect upon all of humanity as the byproduct of living in a fallen world. So in other words, you don't necessarily become unclean because you choose to do so. Sometimes, because of the way our bodies work, male and female alike, you would become unclean. So to be un- if you were unclean, this meant that you couldn't approach the tabernacle of God in worship. You weren't allowed to approach the tabernacle and make sacrifices. And so because God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle, no unclean person could draw near to God's presence because they would defile God's presence by their uncleanness. So these not moms, as we look at Leviticus 12, they're not unclean because of some personal sin that they committed. The conception of the child is not a sin, nor is the birth process itself a sin or cause the defilement. And certainly nor does the the child themselves produce the defilement. So the pain and trauma of, of childbirth, of labor, harkens back to the consequences of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 and the curse wrought by human sin. So this gets really to the first reason of why women were unclean after childbirth. And here's the first reason. The uncleanness comes from the postnatal flow of blood as the mother's body is healed and cleansed after the trauma of childbirth. So what makes the woman unclean? It's the fact that blood is coming out. The blood representing the very life of a creature. We saw this principle as we studied the the animal sacrifices, right? Back in the first few chapters of Leviticus with the blood manipulation, right? Upon the objects in the tabernacle. And so we see this principle stated in Leviticus 17, verse 11, that the life of flesh is in the blood. The life of flesh is in the blood. So one of the reasons for the mother's uncleanness was to really emphasize Israel's distinctions from the pagans who practiced human sacrifices. And so God is making it clear, not through just women after birth, but but for any, for man and woman alike with these bodily discharges, he's trying to make it clear that not an ounce of human blood was to be brought into the tabernacle. Only the blood of the substitute, only the blood of the animal sacrifice was permitted. God is trying to make it clear that his people are different in their sacrificial practices than the pagan nations. So women with a flow of blood were unclean, unable to draw near because of that uncleanness. Uh, And and the second reason for the mother's uncleanness in this process results from the standard of God's purity and of the wholeness of human beings to come into his presence. And so one of the things we learn about these unclean laws is that any effects of the fall any effects of sin's presence in the world, any physical imperfection, this would actually keep you from entering into God's presence. And the point of this is is pretty clear. God's not trying to alienate some and others, but rather what God is trying to show is that he is holy. And not only is sin itself forbidden in his presence in the tabernacle, but even the effects of sin upon the body would be able to keep you from entering into his presence. Sin and its effects would defile God's holy abode, his home. And so women after childbirth were unclean for a time as their bodies healed, returned to their normal operation and function once again. But there was also a third reason 
why these unclean laws exist for the purification after childbirth. You know, as any new mom can tell you, those first few weeks after a baby's birth is hard, right? Labor is hard, but that first month after the baby's born can be really hard, can't it? Because the baby is on this three-hour cycle of sleeping and eating, and moms are still healing from the trauma of childbirth while they're learning their body's cues to be able to nurse the baby and the stress that can be upon the mother. And, and the baby is always, always, always hungry, right? The baby just eats nonstop. So for both mom and baby, there's a little sleep and there's lots of crying, right, on both sides. <laughs> it's stressful. And so the time of uncleanness would give moms the privacy and seclusion they needed to adjust to motherhood. You know, we have to remember, this is several thousand years ago, right? Modern feminine hygiene projects did not exist. And so being unclean permitted these new moms to withdraw from the public eye in order to care for themselves and to care for these new babies that they're entrusted to care for. And they would be able to do that in private rather than in public. And another thing we have to remember about this time, right? We have to remember how high the infant mortality rate was back then. You know, a lot of children did not make it out of childhood. And a lot of infants would not survive the first few weeks of their birth. And that's hard for us to understand, right? In America today, the infant mortality rate is around six babies for every thousand. So six babies die for about every thousand born for whatever reason. And worldwide, thanks to modern medicine over the last few decades, that rate continues to, to decline. It's getting better, right? And just, but one of the things we forget, though, is, is just in 1960, so that's not that long ago, in, in places like sub-Sahara Africa, the infant mortality rate was 250 babies for every thousand. That's one out of every four babies. So as we go back thousands of years ago, Back to the time of ancient Israel, I'm sure that rate was just as high, if not higher. And so the isolation of the baby and the mother would protect the baby from disease and ensure that the baby was nursing properly before they'd be brought out into public society. After all, there was no infamil, right? There was no formula to feed or supplement babies, and so if a mom couldn't feed or nurse her child, the baby just wouldn't make it. And for these reasons and, and more, it really was an act of God's love and care for these women, for these moms, to remain private and secluded and isolated the first few weeks of the baby's life. So this, we still encourage moms to do this today, don't we? Right? This isn't really strange. We don't have laws about this, right? But we encourage new moms to, to spend the first month or so at home with the baby in isolation, right? We tell moms, don't take your, your newborn out to Target the first week, right? Even though moms do, right? And there's no law against it. But, you know, we encourage moms to stay home with the baby, care for them, right? This is not altogether that different. So the interesting thing about this passage, though, I don't know if you caught this as we were reading it, is that the length of purification is different based on the gender of the baby. So if the baby was male, the mother was unclean for a week, and then that uncleanliness would be temporarily lifted for the day so that the son would be circumcised on the eighth day. 
And then, and again, as we think about circumcision, remember circumcision was, was the mark of God's covenant people, right? It's the covenant sign only given to male children of Israel. And then after the circumcision, then the mom would resume her uncleanliness for 33 days. Now, the interesting thing is that the length of uncleanliness is doubled if the mom births a female child. So it's an initial two weeks plus an additional 66 days after that. So why, this is a good question, right? The question I've wrestled with quite a bit this last week, is why is the period of purification doubled for a female child? Because no reason for the difference is given in the text. And scholars have tried to rack their brains around why this could be. And the simple answer is we really just don't know why the length is doubled for female children. The female child, we know this, right? The female child is not more defiling than a male child, right? Remember, it's not the child themselves that are causing the defilement. So there's no sexism to be found here. And even if there was, that would contradict the rest of the Bible, right? And, and clearly affirming the dignity and worth and value of both men and women. So why is, the, why is the length doubled? And so I'll take a shot at it and you can see if you think this is right or not. This is, I think this is how I would best explain it is that the mom is the one child bearer. So she's one child bearer. And so the length of purification for her is 33 days. But when a female is born, there is a second future child bearer involved. So the length of purification is doubled in anticipation of the new child's future time of rearing children and of purification after childbirth. So the length is increased to 66 days. So that's, that's, that's what I'm going with, right? But, but we really don't know. But that's, the, I think, probably the best explanation for what's going on here. Because we really just don't know. Moses, in ancient Israel, they knew why the length was doubled. They just didn't record it down for us in Leviticus. So after all, we've got lots of traditions like this, too, that we practice, but we've kind of forgotten where they've come from over the years. For example, why is it a sign of, of respect for a man to stand when a woman enters into the room and to take off his hat, right? Why, where did that come from, right? Where did that practice come from? And then why does the act of standing and taking off your hat, why does that action communicate respect and honor? Where did that come from in our culture? But yet, it's a symbol of honor and respect. And we just don't know where that, link, that, that, that practice came from. We can't trace it back. But yet, it's a part of our culture, so in a similar way, as we look at this double length of time for the birth of a female child, we just simply don't know where this tradition or where this practice or, or the origins of this law of why the length of time is doubled for female children. And it'll remain a bit of a mystery to us, this side of heaven. So when you get up to heaven, you can, you can ask Jesus why the length was doubled. And I'm sure he'd be, be happy to give you an answer, although you probably have lots of other things you'd want to ask Jesus about before that. But, but, but one of the things we see that Leviticus 12 does teach us here is a, a lesson that is very much needed for our world today. And it's a simple one, one that previous Christians wouldn't even have to mention, but it is one that we've got to mention, that there is a difference between male and female, right? There's a difference between male and female. There are two genders. And separating biological sex from gender, as so many people in our society are trying to do, is a disastrous mistake. And it's an impossibility. 
As the Bible says in Genesis, right? God has made us male and female in his image. So though we possess male and female alike, the same image of God, and so thus we possess inherent value and dignity in God's sight, we do have to affirm that the Bible makes it clear that there is a difference and a distinction between maleness and femaleness. And these differences are not just biological, but they are theological as well. Gender is not a fluid, man-made construct, but it is a fixed and God-given order for the good of human society and for his glory. And so the biblical position that we hold to as a church and that we believe the Bible clearly teaches is a position called complementarianism. This is the idea that men and women are equal in value, but differ in roles, particularly in the home and in the church. And so we don't have time to go into what all that means and, and to really expound upon the differences of gender. We'll do that hopefully later on in the fall in, the, in a series. But Leviticus 12 does remind us, though, that there is a difference between males and females. Even as it celebrates the sanctity of human life, the wonderful arrival of these precious babies, and as we live in a generation that really is so confused on these matters, confused on the sanctity of life, confused on the, the gender itself of maleness and femaleness, as we live in this very confused society, we have to remain vigilant in defending biblical truth that every human being, from conception to final breath, is a life worthy of our protection and our celebration. And this is something we cannot compromise on. So we've looked at the sanctity of life, but let's now look at the sanctification of life. The sanctification of life. So after the time of purification is over, the woman would bring a lamb for a burnt offering and a pigeon or turtle dove for their sin or purification offering. And if the new mom couldn't afford a lamb, then she was permitted to bring another bird, right? Another pigeon or another turtle dove as, a, as an offering. And these sacrifices at the end of her time of purification would make the woman clean and restore her unto tabernacle worship yet again. So why these offerings? Why these two particular offerings? Well, well, the sin offering, you might remember as we talked about this one, is also called the purification offering. So it, yes, it was used in cases of personal sin, but it was also used to purify those who had become unclean. So the burnt offering, though, addresses kind of more generally the mom's sinfulness and her general sin, but also was an act of thanksgiving and worship and thankfulness to the Lord for this new baby that the Lord has blessed her with. And it's interesting, as we look at these laws here in Leviticus 12, if you flip over to Luke chapter 2, we see how Jesus' own mother fully obeys those laws. You're welcome to flip over there, if you like, in Luke chapter 2. And here we see Mary, the mother of Jesus, right, fully obey Leviticus chapter 12. Now that you know a little bit about the background of Leviticus 12, you actually know what's going on a little bit more in Luke chapter 2. So as we see in Luke chapter 2, we see that Jesus was presented, as the scripture says, right, on the eighth day for his circumcision. That's chapter 2, verse 21. 
And then we see in chapter 2, verse 22, here we see Mary follow the purification according to the law of Moses, right? And they bring Jesus to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. And notice what the sacrifices are. The sacrifice is, is two birds, right? A pair of turtle doves or, or two young pigeons in verse 24. And so this, of course, suggests that Jesus' family was of meager means, right? They couldn't afford the lamb, so they brought two birds for Mary's purification sacrifice here, for the sin offering and for the, the burnt offering. And you'll remember that in this scene is monumental, not just because Mary is following the Levitical law, but we also see that there are two people at the temple on this occasion that help recognize the importance of the baby that Mary had just given birth to. You remember Simeon and Anna both recognized Jesus as the babe of the Lord's salvation and as the redemption of God. You know, Luke tells us that Simeon was a righteous and devout man who had been waiting for years for the consolation of Israel. And so the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that before he would die, he would see the Messiah. And as he went into the temple, he sees Joseph, he sees Mary, he sees the babe Jesus, he sees them go through the Levitical law, Leviticus 12, making purification for Mary after childbirth. And as he sees Jesus, the Spirit prompts him that this is the baby, right? this is the one that you have been waiting for. And so he takes up Jesus in his arms and he blessed God and said, look at Luke 2, verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So we see that Simeon recognizes that this baby that was born is the salvation of God, one that he's prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation, not just to Israel, but to the to, but to Gentiles alike, to, to us. And we also are told in Luke 2 that the prophetess Anna was there on that same day in the temple in Jerusalem, and she was an older woman right, who spent most of her life as a widow, and she spent most of her days there at the temple worshiping and fasting and praying. And seeing the Christ child, she began to, to give thanks to God. And she began to tell everyone who was waiting on the Lord's redemption that the baby had come. And so as Mary went to the temple in Jerusalem to purify herself according to the law of Leviticus, she was met with prophetic reminders that this child that she gave birth to, this child that was with her, that she was caring, that she was nursing, this child would ultimately be her purification. Right? Not the two turtle doves, but this baby that she had given birth to. And this baby, this Jesus, would not only purify Mary of, of her sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And this is what we see the New Testament clearly affirm, is that Jesus is the law fulfiller, right? He's the law fulfiller. He doesn't do away with the law, right? He doesn't abolish the law. He doesn't just override the law, but rather Jesus is the one who fulfills the law because he is the one who is born under the law. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 states, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, 
born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so we see, as we look at Leviticus 12, and as we see the arrival of Jesus in, in, in Luke 2, we see that Jesus is the obedient son. He's the obedient son. He is righteous, right? He, he fulfills all the demands of the law here, right? Luke is intentional in showing that, yeah, Jesus and his mother, his family, they, they followed Leviticus 12. They, they were obedient to it, to the T. Christ is obedient, He was circumcised on the eighth day so that he might be the true son of Abraham, the true Israel, who by Christ, his own perfect obedience, would bring purification to all who trust him. His obedience and his righteousness are so that he might lay down his life for us. And as we look at Jesus as the law fulfiller, we see how he sanctifies us, right? how he makes us righteous. He takes the unrighteous and makes them righteous. He takes the unclean and cleanses them. He takes the impure and he purifies them. That's who Jesus is. That's what he's done as our savior. So Christ is now fulfilled, right? We've talked about that a lot throughout Leviticus. He has fulfilled the need for the tabernacle. He has fulfilled these categories of ritual cleanliness, right? He's he's accomplished all that, right? So new moms, and I know we've got a few on the way here in our church this morning, you're not going to be unclean after you give birth to your children, right? We're not going to kick you out of the church and say you got to stay home for 66 days, right? Those laws have been fulfilled. New moms are no longer required to unclean, be unclean, and you don't have to bring me two pigeons as an offering in order to come back to church, right? So remember, we are not sanctified by the blood of animals, but we're sanctified by the blood of Christ, right? The whole Levitical system is pointing towards the purifier, the cleanser, the sacrifice, who is Jesus Christ. So even though these laws of cleanliness here in Leviticus 12 are no longer longer apply, the lessons to which these laws point remain throughout all time and eternity. So because of of our, because of humanity, male and female alike, because of our fall into sin, you and I are severed from fellowship with God. That all of us, not just women after childbirth, but all of us in our own way, right? We have unclean hands. We have uncircumcised hearts, right? That keep us away from, from the joyful and satisfying presence of God. Because of our sin, we, we can't be in God's presence. And as those lost in our sin and the uncleanness of our sins, we cannot find completeness. We cannot find satisfaction. We cannot find joy that comes from God's presence because we are forbidden from God's presence. This is the good news of the gospel, right? This is the good news of Jesus' arrival, is that by God's grace, through Jesus Christ, we who were cut off from God because of our sin can now draw near to God by the blood of Christ. This is the good news of what Christ has done for us, is that the blood of Christ purifies us once and for all. And he cleanses us, not temporarily, but permanently so that we might draw near to God in his presence. Jesus redeems us and he saves us by his blood for his 
glory. And so it is in the sanctity of Jesus's life that he brings sanctification for our lives. If you don't know Jesus this morning, the great call and plea I want to make to you this morning is to come and trust in Jesus. He is the one who was righteous in your place. He fulfilled God's righteous demands of the law in your place. And that he goes to the cross, he lays down his life, sheds his blood so that your sins might have atonement. He is your sin offering. He is your burnt offering. His blood cleanses you from your defilement before God. And so if you don't know Jesus this morning, left in your sin, you are unclean. You are unable to come to God's presence. You are unable to enter into heaven. And it is only if you turn from your sins, repent of them, and trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord by faith that you will be cleansed and made righteous by God's grace and by the blood of his only begotten Son. Jesus is the law fulfiller. He is the one who sanctifies us. And so if you don't know Jesus, our plea with you this morning is that you would come and trust him and know him and experience the fullness of joy that is to be found in him as God would make you right by his grace. Only Christ can deliver you from the bondage of death that you deserve, that I deserved. Only Jesus can cleanse you, can cleanse me from the defilement of my sins. So won't you come and trust him as Savior and Lord this day? You see, from Leviticus 12, we, we learn of the sanctity of human life, but we also learn how God sanctifies us through substitutionary atonement, through the life and death of Jesus Christ. And so the call for us today, for all of us, is for every man, every woman, every child, right, to trust in Jesus Christ and to be cleansed by him. And by God's grace, he has made a way so that through our cleansing, we might dwell with him for all eternity. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us as one under the law. God in Christ Jesus has done that for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, as we prepare our hearts to respond to God's word this morning through the supper, may we reflect on the sanctity of Christ's life and how he sanctifies us by his blood. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning so grateful for the life of Jesus Christ. And Father, we confess, Lord, that as Leviticus 12 teaches us, that yes, we are made in your image. Yes, as human beings, we possess inherent dignity and worth that should be cherished and protected. But Lord, we confess that we are also great sinners in need of purification, in need of cleansing. Father, that because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our wretchedness, Lord, that we are deserving of your judgment. But Lord, because you love us and because you are a merciful God, you give grace. And Lord, you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, 
born as one under the law, born under the demands of Leviticus 12, and Lord Jesus fulfills it all. Lord, he was perfectly righteous, fully obedient, without sin. And so, Lord, he became the sacrifice of cleansing that we need. He became our purification offering, our sin offering, Lord, so that by his blood we might be cleansed so that we might no longer be severed from your fellowship. But Lord, that because of Christ, we can now draw near into your presence. Father, we know, Lord, that as those who have been made in your image, Lord, we were designed and hardwired for fellowship and communion with you. But Lord, that, that aching longing in our hearts exists because of sin and because that fellowship has been severed by our uncleanliness. Father, I pray again for those in this room who don't know Jesus, Lord, that they would recognize their defilement. And Lord, that in desperation that they would fling themselves upon Christ Jesus, who is their atoning sacrifice, who is their cleansing purification, And Lord, that as they turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, Lord, that you would take those who are far and bring them near to you, Father, where there is joy and life everlasting, where there is forgiveness and restoration and redemption. So Father, we pray, Lord, that as we consider this text, Lord, that we would be filled with great awe and wonder and joy and worship over Christ Jesus over his life, and over his death. And Lord, that we might praise and worship him as we reflect on the goodness of your grace in the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.